We're going to continue on our study. If you have your Bibles, pull them out. Luke 16, Luke 16. Great story here this morning. Let's all stand together at verse 19. Continuing our study through this wonderful gospel. I've shared this before. I didn't know. I'm just so grateful that God had us in the gospel of Luke this last year. And I don't know how many times it has been so relevant right to where we are on a particular time. And I'm watching it in flow even with the women's ministry and the other ministries here at church. And it's just been really incredible. I, that's the Holy Spirit can do that. Only he can do that, right? And so we just acknowledge him in this. But we're going to continue at verse 19. Jesus is here talking and he says, Now there was a rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Nazareth was laid at his gate and covered with swords and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried And Hades lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and he saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life, You received your good things, and likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over here uh, to you will not be able to, and none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father that you sent him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, They will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. You may be seated. As we've been going into chapter 16, really you have chapter 14 to chapter 17, it all appears to take place in one day. But in chapter 16, Jesus begins to highlight the issue of money and wealth as it relates to the kingdom of God. And while we saw in the first story of this, of this chapter that money is in itself a moral that is neither good nor is it evil, it can be used as a utility for good or evil. And the way that we view money and use our money and material wealth is at its very root a very deep spiritual issue. That Jesus knows when you touch on this issue, you're touching on something that is very personal to people's hearts. It reveals much about what we believe is true about God and much about what we believe is true about his promise for eternity in heaven. Paul warned Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10, he said, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. 
and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And again, notice here, it's the love of money. It's not money itself, but it's that love of money. Hebrews 13, 3 says, but make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, which is hard to do, right? For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. That's what the Lord says to us. And Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its, with its, with its income. And so for this very reason, we know that Jesus spoke a great deal about money as it relates to the kingdom of God, as it relates to our faith in God. And so it should be a concern to every one of us as disciples. This is an issue he wants to deal with. And again, at this point in the study, Jesus is now within weeks of his final ascent up into Jerusalem, where he will be betrayed into the hands of the religious leaders. Ultimately, he'll be crucified on the cross. But at this particular time, things between him and the religious leaders, the adversaries, have become very heated. They are at this present time uh, very furious with Jesus. They're plotting his demise or looking for anything and everything they might be able to use against him. And we have seen throughout these chapters that for the most part, as Jesus begins to expound upon the kingdom and the truths and principles of the kingdom, that he often uses the religious leaders of the contrast or example of how not to be. That they're the ones you want to make sure that you're not like. In the parable of the unfaithful steward or manager, Jesus, we saw in the beginning of the chapter, drove home the point that and wisdom and importance of, of using our present circumstances to invest in our eternal future then. You know, those, he said, who are faithful with little now will be uh, faithful with much then. With those who are unfaithful with little now, I'm unfaithful then. You know, if you can't be trusted with little, he says, you can hardly expect to be trusted with more. But the point is, he's saying that we are all stewards, that we have all been entrusted with a certain amount of things that God has entrusted to us, whether these material wealth or finances or maybe your time, so many issues you could deal with, but how we view and utilize these temporal earthly resources has everything to say about our faith, what we really, truly believe about God. Now, Jesus put the capstone on that study by saying this, no servant can serve two masters for either you will hate the one and love the other or else you will be devoted to one and despise the other. He said, you cannot, you cannot serve God and wealth. And he makes it a pretty black and white issue here. And we saw here is the principle you have to hold on to is that money is a great servant, but it is a poor master. If you're serving money, it will enslave you to every kind of enslavement you can find. If money is serving you, then you can do much good with it. But we saw in chapter, uh, verse 14 that it says, now the Pharisees, notice this, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. When Jesus talked this parable on money, he touched a nerve with the Pharisees. And really, uh, they turned their nose up at him. They began to laugh him off. 
Now, we saw last week in our study that between these two stories in chapter 16, that Jesus once again confronted the religious leaders and he exposed them in their hypocrisy. He showed how they honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. The Pharisees and Sadducees or, and, and scribes were the religious leaders. And as such, they were the ones who were supposed to be the stewards of overseers of God's flock. But Jesus found them to be unfaithful. They were deeply religious, but they were cold. They were unbelieving. They were hard-hearted. They were proud and calloused and selfish and greedy and cared far more of taking care of their own welfare than they did about the needs of others. And the thing you learn in that is this. It is very possible to be deeply religious, but spiritually dead. You guys hear that? You can be deeply religious, but you can be spiritually dead. Jesus speaks to the churches in the book of Revelation. Some of you think you're alive, he says, but you don't know. You don't know what's really going on with you. To make matters worth, religious leaders were abusing the law of Moses that they claimed to honor, that they claimed to strictly adhere to in order to justify their own evil hearts, their intentions, their ambitions. In essence, what Jesus is saying to the disciples in this is this, living life for the gospel of God's kingdom as a disciple is not gonna come naturally, it's not gonna come easily, it's going to require it to be an aggressive pursuit, a willingness to break away from the flow and the tide of this world. To live a life according to this gospel on this earth now means you have to have a determined to go against the grain. You have to swim against the current of the culture and reject the world's wisdom. But for those who endure, there's a great promise of reward that awaits all of us. And I really pray that God gives you the wisdom to understand these things. Yeah, it's not easy. At times it's very difficult. But we know this is that God is with us at all times. We're going to find ourselves not flowing with the world, at odds with the world. And the way this world is so crazy right now, that's not too hard to see. Listen, we march to the beat of a different drummer. And if you're looking for some easy way, passive way of life. That's not for you as a disciple. We have to press in. We have to press in to the Lord. Now, we come to this next story here, and, and we see here in verse 19 that Jesus tells us the story of a rich man and a poor man. Now, what is interesting to note about this particular story is that there is a debate as to whether or not this is a parable or, in fact, an anecdote that Jesus is sharing here of a real life situation. And the reason they question that is because in no other parable that Jesus ever offers does he actually use the specific name of any individual. Now, regardless of what you believe about that, the story is, is very potent and it's something I pray that God teaches you some very important principles by it. And he says here there was a rich man. He habitually dressed in purple and fine linen. He joyously lived in splendor every day. And there's also a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores. And he longed to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now here we are introduced to two of the three players. We have the rich man. 
um, context insinuates, of course, that he is himself Jewish, that he is a descendant of Abraham. But we can see that while he lived his life here on earth, he dressed very decadently. He wore expensive clothing. He was very extravagant. You know, he dressed himself in purple, which was in a very expensive dye at that time. But it's the color of royalty. So it's really expensive clothing. He wore expensive fine linen, no doubt imported from Egypt. And it says he joyously lived in splendor. He lived in luxury, luxury and sumptuously, as some of your translations might say. But he had no want. He had everything he could possibly need. Now, the not kosher way to say this would be this. He lived high on the hog. <laughs> he was living well. He ate the finest. The best buffet, I believe, every day before him. What you want to eat? And in contrast to him, we meet the poor man. We're given his name. It's Lazarus, which Latinized means Eliezer, but it it simply means this, the Lord is my helper. And as you watch the story here unfold, you realize that while he's on earth, he doesn't seem to live up to his name. But there comes a time when he does live up to his name. What we can learn from him is that he is physically, is financially destitute. He has been laid. He has to be laid. In other words, he has to be carried to the, to the rich man's gate. No doubt, appealing a good audience who are able to help him in his need. Day after day, he was laid there, destitute, alone, malnutrition. His body is covered with sores and abscesses. He is starving to death. His greatest longing is that he might just get some of the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table. Now, in those days, they didn't use utilities like we use to eat, so they would eat with their hands. And when they would finish their meal, what they would do is take some bread, and they would clean their hands with the bread, and they would simply discard it away. And this is what this man is hoping for. If I could just get his scraps, his throwaways, I would be more than than enough. And every day, that's his hope, to maybe get some crumbs from the rich man. And the only comfort that we see here for the poor man is that the dogs come to him and they lick his sores that oozed with abscess. This is the picture of the man. In verse 22, we learn that the poor man died and was carried away by the angels of Abraham to the angels of Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. Now, in the story, you notice that both these men have something major in common, and that is this, they both die. And the truth is that if the Lord doesn't come for us in the rapture, it is inevitable. The statistics are sure. One out of every one of us is going to die. We've been living all year in fear of this, but it's going to happen. At some point, at some place, we don't know how. Some of us are fear it more than anything else, but death has no prejudice. Sir Walter Scott said, and come he slow or come he fast, it is but death who comes at last. Hebrews 9:27. inasmuch as it appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. One of the things you notice in this story that it emphasizes is this, is that physical death is not the end of the story for anyone. We all die, but that's not the end of the story. 
Both the rich man and the poor man die. The poor man, no doubt, his death, you know, he is hauled off to some poor man's grave somewhere, obscurity, obscurity with no interest from anyone. The rich man was buried, no doubt, in this elaborate funeral, you know, with all the pomp and with all the ceremony, they would have hired professional mourners who would have lined the streets and the people would have come out to honor him as they make his way down the road and his body would then be entombed with an elaborate expensive tomb that had been carved out just for him. And while their temporal physical bodies are decaying, rotting in the grave, Returning back to the dust, we're told that their souls are carried away to a different place to await either their judgment to come or their reward to come. The poor man's soul, we learn here, is carried off by the angels to what is called the bosom of Abraham. That was the, the father of the faithful. And while the rich man, is, we see here, is brought to a place called Hades. Now, I want to take just a minute and talk to you about Hades because a lot of people are really curious about this. You need to understand that before and until the time of Christ's death and resurrection, the time that he would make his perfect atonement for our sin, those who died under the Old Testament era, both the righteous and the unrighteous, were sent to a holding place called Hades. There they awaited either their resurrection for the righteous or for their ultimate eternal judgment for the unrighteous. So Hades, you could call, is the waiting or holding place until the future time. In the Old Testament, Hades was referred to in the Hebrew as Sheol, as the grave. Make my grave in Sheol, make my bed in Sheol, the common abode of the dead. Some in Hades we see here would rest in comfort while others suffered in torment, awaiting the fire, the ultimate judgment. Now some have often referred to Hades as hell, but that's not technically so. Hell awaits them. Under the old covenant, God provided this sacrificial system by which men could have a temporal relationship or fellowship with God through the sacrifices that were made. And you go through the Old Testament, what's all this sacrifice about? Well, it's all looking forward to the perfect sacrifice which Jesus is ultimately going to offer when he offers up his life. But the blood of bulls and goats Though they could cover sin, they could not take away sin. That's the important part. In fact, Hebrews 10, 4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So before the death of Christ, it's impossible for sinful men to be in the presence of God who is holy and righteous. And so the righteous who died in faith under the old covenant, they waited until the time Christ would come as the ultimate sacrifice, when his blood would be offered up as the lamb for sinners slain. Now notice the beautiful thing about Jesus' blood is this. It doesn't just cover sin, it puts sin away. That's an amazing thing. In other words, it's gone. As far as the east is from the west, that's what he does with it. Hebrews 9, 11 says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So in the Old Testament, when a righteous died, you know, they awaited this day of the perfect sacrifice. When Hebrews 
refers to the the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, it, it says this, it says, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And verse 39, it says, all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. When Jesus dies on the cross, and we're going to celebrate communion this morning, he descended into Hades with his redemptive work, as Peter alludes to in Acts chapter 2 after Pentecost. Peter later says in, in 1 Peter 3.18, he tells us that Jesus preached in Hades. He tells us, Paul says in, in Ephesians 4, he says that he set the captives free. Therefore, it says when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? Jesus went down and he set the captives free who were waiting for him and his perfect sacrifice. It's a beautiful picture. It's just a wonderful thing to see. But here we find, under, they're still under the old covenant here. Jesus has not yet died. They're in the bosom of Abraham. The righteous and the wicked are both waiting for their ultimate judgment or their reward. So when Jesus rises from the dead on the third, third day, he becomes the first fruit of many brethren who are going to come to faith and also follow him in resurrection. What does that mean for us as believers today? It means that when we die, when we close our eyes, our souls are immediately brought into the presence of a holy and righteous God who has in time a, an eternal body prepared for us. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 says, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Physical death has no sting for the believer. Man, don't you get that? This last year, you know, the Lord just ministered that to me so wonderfully. You know, at the very worst that could ever happen in this life is to lose this life. And yet what happens? I'm brought into the presence of the Almighty God. What a beautiful thing. The resurrection of Christ seals also the condemnation of the wicked and the unbelieving for eternal judgment. The unrighteous, we learn, wait the second resurrection where they will be judged for their sin. So technically, the wicked are not now yet in hell, but they are in torment as they wait that day. Revelation 20:15 says, it is anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, having discussed Hades, let's return to the story, because he here tells of Hades of these two separate compartments, if you will, one that is designated only for those who are righteous or the believing, you would call them, and the other is for those who are unbelieving. And so we pick it up here in verse 23, and he says, in Hades, he, the rich man, lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony and in, in this flame. So you see here, just as there was a contrast in the way these two men lived their lives, so you see there's a great contrast after their death. 
After death, we find that the poor man receives great comfort. He's in the bosom of Abraham. He's snuggled close. He's, he's protected. He's shielded. He's, he's in a place of tremendous comfort that is designed for the faithful while the rich man suffers in torment in Hades. In fact, he sees him out in the distance, the rich man. He looks out in the distance, and there he sees Father Abraham. And with him, he sees Lazarus that is snuggled up to him. And Scripture defines Abraham as the father of the faithful. While many Jews would have assumed that simply being a mere descendant of Abraham by blood was enough to get themselves uh, an inheritance of God's blessings, in truth, what God was always looking for in his people was the faith of Abraham to be passed on to his children. The rich man we see here died. He had no faith, nothing to show for himself, and it was proven by the way that he had lived his life. Now, some interesting things to note here about the rich man in Hades. First of all, he saw and he recognized Lazarus. That means that he recognized who he was. You know, he had sensations of pain. Uh, he felt torment of soul. He explains an unquenchable thirst that he has. His tongue is dried. It's hot. It's, it's, it's a flame. He has the capacity to remember his life before he died. He even remembers his brothers who, unless they repent, are also going to end up in the same kind of torment that he is in. And so he cries out to Abraham and he asks him, notice this, for mercy. That he might send Lazarus to dip his finger in water just to touch his tongue and cool him off. Now it's interesting that he would ask Abraham for mercy when he has never shown mercy. And Jesus has a lot to say about that through his teaching. But again, this is not ultimate hell. This is preparation for it. But this is torment. And he describes himself in agony with this unquenchable fire. In verse 25, Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received the good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able to and that none may cross over from there to us. Here you see the great reversal. While the rich man lived his life in luxury and selfishness on earth, indulging himself in every desire, showing no mercy for those in need, after death he suffers this torment. The poor man who lived in want with a life filled with suffering and pain after his death, he has brought tremendous comfort and relief. Now, Abraham calls him child. He's acknowledging that he is, in fact, a descendant of Abraham. But in Hades, the rich man looks out and he sees him, and he recognizes him, calls out to Father Abraham. His place is a place of torment and pain. The rich man sees the beggar, and he begs for mercy. It's like Abraham would say to him, remember when you lived your life? Do you remember how good it was? Do you remember how you fed yourself? Do you remember how you clothed yourself? Do you remember how good you had it? Now you took very good care of yourself, and you did everything for yourself? Not to mention while he's living the good life, 
he had shown absolutely no mercy to Lazarus. He lived completely for himself. Now, he could possibly say, well, I never hurt anybody. But you see, living purely for yourself does hurt other people. Note the comparison here of the parable of the unjust steward and the rich man who did not use his resources to prepare for the world to come. And you wonder how many times when he was alive had he seen Lazarus out there at the gate? How many times had he just seen Lazarus, just this annoyance, this pest, something that's a nuisance? How he had wanted just to get rid of this troubled person who sat at his gate. You know, believers, it's true that there's only one time to use our God-given resources and invest in eternal treasure, and that is now, while God gives us the breath to breathe. It's now. 1 John 3, 17, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And James says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for the body, what use is that? See, James can't see how you could possibly claim to love God and not meet the need of somebody you see near you who is in real need, genuine need. James questions how you can claim to have authentic faith and not help someone else. In effect, both view these uncaring, stingy people as lost despite their claims of both love and of faith. And that the only time we ever really get to use the resources for the kingdom is right now. Just to invest in those people around us and the situations around us. And Abraham tells him, you know, his request is impossible because there's a chasm between that place and his place. It's impassable. In other words, he's telling him this, it's too late to repent. There's no coming back here. There's no mercy to be found. That door has been shut, which highlights really for me as I think about it. Again, I want to come back to Jesus here because I love this. What Jesus did for us when he offered up his life on the cross. For us as believers, he removed that chasm between us and God. He bridged the gap with the cross that we now, the Bible says in Hebrews, we have access to go boldly before the throne of grace, right into the presence of God because of the blood of Jesus and what he's given to us according to his wisdom. The only thing is this, the only time people to place our faith in Christ for our salvation is now. It's just as we live this life. There are no second chances after this life. There isn't a purgatory. There isn't some place where you go and say, well, maybe I'll get another chance after this. Oh, no, this is it. This life that God gives to us. Now, the thing I want to really stress to you this morning is this. You cannot look at this story and think somehow that Lazarus is simply saved because he's poor or that the rich man is damned because he's wealthy. That's not the point. In fact, Abraham, if you remember, was a very wealthy man while he lived his life on this earth. What made the difference with Abraham? He was a man of faith. And he trusted God. He loved God. And he used what was given to him, I believe, according to the ways of God. 
So Lazarus, we see here, must have had, although he was poor and laid at the rich man's gate, he must have had a relationship with the Lord. The rich man says here in verse 27, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Notice that is the rich man is doing the begging here. He's begging that somehow they would send someone to his father's house where he has five brothers. He says, they need to know this truth. They need to know all about this so that they don't come to this place. And this is really the first indication you have that this rich man ever thought of anybody else but himself at a time when it's too late. But he seems to understand what it takes for his brothers to be spared the torment. In verse 29, Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he, the rich man, said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Now, listening to the reasoning of the rich man, if someone goes to them from the dead, he says, oh, they'll, they'll hear, they'll repent. And notice again that he understands what it will require for them, that they have to repent. Verse 31, it says, but he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. You see, he mistakenly assumes that, listen, if somebody goes to them from the dead, something supernatural, that will persuade them. That'll bring them, that'll make sure that they know they don't come here. You see, after all, the unbeliever, you know, if you, you speak so much about, about judgment and hell, they just, you know, listen, if they're cold to you now, they're always going to be cold to you. Listen, he says, they have the law. They have Moses. If that doesn't lead them to Jesus, I don't know what will. And I really believe this takes us back to the religious leaders. Remember, they boasted in Moses. They boasted in the law of prophets. But despite all their knowledge, they never applied the truth to their own hearts to believe and hold fast to the promises of the law and the prophets. Jesus once said to the religious leaders in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may find life. You see, the religious leaders didn't reject Jesus for lack of information. That wasn't their issue. They had Moses, they had the prophets. They rejected him because of their own pride. They rejected him because of their own belief, their refusal to even acknowledge that they were sinners in need of a savior. The poor man who lives all his life on the earth and of want and neglect after he dies, he finally lives up to his name, the Lord is my helper. Interesting thing is this, that within this story, within a few weeks, we're told in John chapter 11, there is a man who is going to die who also shares the name Lazarus. He's not a rich man. He's the brother of Mary and Martha, but his story is really significant. And I believe it's a follow-up to this story. See, we're told that by the time Jesus arrived on the scene of his friend Lazarus, that he had already been dead and entombed for four days. 
Now, people, you need to understand, he wasn't mostly dead. He was thoroughly dead. He was completely dead. After four days, his eyeballs would have collapsed. His organs would have been turned to liquid. His brain would have been turned to mush. His blood and, and you know, separated into corpuscles and plasma. His back would have turned purple. His front would have been yellow. Listen, he was dead, thoroughly dead. So when Jesus tells the servants to roll away the stone of his tomb, Martha speaks up, and then King James, I love it, by this time he stinketh. And when Jesus calls Lazarus forth from the tomb, there he comes walking out covered with grave clothes, raised to life, a miracle of miracles. Powerful, so powerful, everybody began to talk about it. In fact, you have here the illustration, does that cause the religious leaders to believe? This is what's said, John 12, verse 9. The large crowd of Jews then learned that he, Jesus, was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but also for the man, also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. Notice they acknowledge that he raised him from the dead, but look at this. But the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also. Man. You see, the, the resurrection of the dead meant nothing to the religious leaders who are only all the more hardened in their own unbelief and hatred of Jesus, which exposes people the fallacy of trusting in signs to bring people to Jesus. If they can't hear the word of God, how are they going to come? You know, Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The rich man isn't lost because he's rich. He's lost because he doesn't respond to God. When he has the opportunity, he lives in his own deception. C.S. Lewis was told or about a gravestone inscription that read, Here lies an atheist, all dressed up and no place to go. <laughs> Lewis quietly replied, I bet he wishes that were so. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. There's only one time that we get to really respond to God's love and faith, and that's while he gives us breath right here on earth. John 3.18 says, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the choice that people make. And I want to tell you in this, the one thing you don't know from Jesus, there's a lot of foolishness out there in churches saying, well, you know, hell isn't really real. God would never do this. Hell is very real. Revelation 20, verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. Now it's there. God's given it to us. The question is, do you believe it? 
He has prepared eternal punishment, not just for Satan and his demons, but for all who refuse the grace of God. In essence, God doesn't send anyone to hell. This is the choice that people make for themselves. But in hell, we find there's no comfort. There is no pleasure. There is no mercy. There is no grace. There is no pity. There is no compassion. There is no purgatory or escape or some other way of making your way apart. And I need to know this for sure, there's no parties. There's no parties there. There'll be no atheists there. No one will ever be able to say, I went to Jesus and he turned me away. It's how often you hear people say, well, you know, if I go to hell, at least I'll be with all my friends and we'll party up, man. It's stupid. Utterly stupid. It's a place of torment. But God never sends anyone to hell. He spares no expense to keep us from hell. And that is the choice that people make for themselves. Mark 8.36 says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Jesus says in Matthew 7.13, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, the way is narrow that leads to, to life, and there are few who find it. Jesus. Physical death is not final. Spiritual death is eternal. There is no second chance after this one. But I want to leave you on this wonderful note. Romans 6.23 says, the wage of sin is death. But it doesn't leave you there. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Do you feel like a fool for living for Jesus today? I tell you, we're the most blessed people on the face of this earth. And I believe it with all my heart. I believe it's true. I really believe it. That when I close my eyes, I'm gonna be right in the presence of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Not because Doug Snow is a great man at all, but because Jesus is a great Savior. And this morning, we're going to have communion. And what we're doing again is saying, Lord, I believe. I still trust. I still know that my redemption was bought and paid for at Calvary. And I believe, Lord, that you have given me life. Now, if you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus, right now, today, this can be your day. Because you heard the word, you hear it. You don't have to receive it and you don't have to believe it, but you've been told. Christ loves you. And if you're here this morning and you've never bowed your knee to him, you need to understand. This is the time that he's given for you to put your faith in him. And this morning, if you just confess your sin to him and confess 
your need for him, he will be right there to receive you into himself because that's the kind of savior he is. For us who believe as we have communion, we're celebrating this. We're celebrating that we believe we're forgiven, we've been washed, we've been cleansed, we've been bought and paid for, and our trust is completely in Jesus. Father, we thank you this morning. Thank you, God, just for this time in your word. We don't like to talk about hell. We don't like to talk about torment. We don't like to talk about so many things that, God, you have placed before us, and yet, Lord, we know today that is your heart for us. Lord, that we live in a world that is lost. But this morning, Father, in close, we, as we spend time here in communion. Father, I pray that it would be a time of refreshment for all of us who believe. I pray, Father, that we would hold fast this morning the truth of your word, that we are yours. And that, Lord, none of us are here this morning and are saved because we're great people, but because you are a great savior and we trust you. So, Lord, I pray as our waiting together on you this morning in worship, that you minister to our hearts. Lord, speak to us the things that we need to hear. Maybe there's things in our lives, God, that you want to purge and things you want to deal with that we need to reckon with, God. Help us, Lord, to consider the truth, Lord, that with this life you've given us something, a very purpose, a grand purpose to be a light. So we pray, Lord, you meet with us in these moments.